Again, we want to welcome you today. I'm sure you've seen a lot of things on social media. One thing I looked into just a little bit was a, at the end of the uh, end of the plague in London in the 1660s, in 1666, the bubonic plague was coming to an end, and there was one more outbreak in London. They shut down the entire city for a full year. They were in lockdown. And it was in that time that a 23-year-old named Isaac Newton sat there in isolation and developed what would become the three laws of physics and also discovered geometry or calculus. So for all the students watching right now, teenagers, college students, younger students, just know there's some teacher or educator who's coming up with, with what will become like Algebra 7 or Calculus 4, something like that. Uh, who knows what's happening? And I'm sure there's a lot more that went into discovering physics and calculus than just Isaac Newton in isolation. I invite you right now to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. N.T. Wright, one of the greatest theologians and scholars of our day, said if he could only have two chapters of the Bible to read and study and preach for the rest of his life, it would be Romans chapter 8 and John chapter 20, which talks about the resurrection. Romans 8 is something I memorized a couple of years ago, and I encourage you. I've, I've given a lot of people this week, if they needed a word of encouragement, I've sent many of you to Psalm 121, 121. I sent you to Romans 8, and I sent you to 1 Peter 1. Uh, it's hard not being with you today, but uh, in Colossians 2, one thing Paul said, and he said this multiple times where he would tell people, hey, I'm absent from you in body, but I'm present with you in spirit. So even though we're absent from one another in body, we're present with each other right now through the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, I want to begin kind of in the middle of a sentence, but in verse 21, it goes like this. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to the K, that all creation... Everything in creation, which we're, we're a part of that, all of creation will be liberated, will be set free from its bondage to decay, set free from anything that's holding its bondage, set free from anything that is keeping it from living as God intended for it to live, liberated from bondage, set free from bondage and decay, and brought into freedom. That's what God does. God liberates people from bondage and decay. God ushers them and brings them into a place of freedom and the glory of the children of God. That in the fall in Genesis 3, not just human beings, but all creation like fell off a cliff. And it's been, it's been in, in complete chaos ever since, often in denial or rebellion of who God is. But the, the heart of God is to help put these things back together, to liberate us from bondage and decay, to set us free into new life. It's the cry of our heart in this season. And then Paul says this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth up until this present time, that all creation has been groaning. And a few different times in Romans 8, you have this word groan, that different things are going to groan because of, of what currently was and groaning because of what it wants to be. And the image Paul uses here is groaning is in the pain of childbirth. Casey and I have two boys. I've been blessed to be in the room for both of them. I've heard the groans and the pains of childbirth both times in that room. The first one was fairly easy, at least for me. We were down in Houston. It was NBA playoffs that were on. Casey decided to have the baby in, you know, at the time where it didn't really interfere with some of the playoff games happening. But it was everything that happened in that room. Just It was, I, I, I was in the moment. Casey was great. True, it came out healthy. And then in 2009, Noah's our Memphis baby. Noah's the first child on either side of our family in generations born outside of the state of Texas. So we're right here at Baptist East in Memphis in 2009. We had to be at the hospital at 3.30 in the morning, so it was already early. Our, our, our bodies were already off, and, and then it came time, and the, the pep talk started. Of, hey, we can do this. Get your head in the game. We've done this before. We can do this again, all right? We can do this. And, and then the issue was that 
Casey was the one giving the pep talk to me. I was a complete basket case that day. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I, I woke up early in the morning, if I was overcome by anxiety. I don't know. But I was pacing throughout the room. My head, my hands just rubbing my face and, and going through my hair. And I just, I was full of anxiety. And it's Casey who's like, Josh Rock, get yourself together. And I think I even heard the nurses say, do you want us to give him an epidural? I think we could go behind him and stick him trying to just calm this dude down. So finally I was able to calm down just a little bit. And I witnessed Casey look into a man's eyes. Only time I've ever seen her do this. The man who was giving her the epidural. And Casey said, sir, I don't know your name. I don't know anything about you. But I just wanted you to know, I love you. It's the only time I've ever heard Casey tell another man, like, just look into his eyes, other than, like, other than her dad, and just say, I love you. And I started sizing the dude up. I was like, man, what's up? My, my wife's not falling in love, is he? And he just looked at me. He was like, I get it all the time. I get that all the time. There are two times we've been in a hospital room, and I've heard the groans of childbirth, and I've seen the new life. And there are a couple of times Paul uses this imagery. And I'm sure one day people are going to grab Paul in heaven and be like, hey, dude, why all the childbirth imageries? You have no clue what it was like. But in Galatians 4, Paul says, I'm in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In Romans 8, Paul talks about all creation is groaning like in the pain of childbirth. It's Paul's way of saying that we are groaning because we hunger for new life, for something fresh, a new wave of God, a new movement of God, that God's going to do a new thing. And we're groaning because this is what we long for. This is what we want. In verse 23, I want to show you what... Literally in the Greek, what it says, and, and, and our versions usually don't capture all of this, but there's a word that go, it's sustainaze, which is a word for groaning together. So it's not that you were by yourself groaning, it's that we, the church, were groaning together. But then after that, what's left out of, of a lot of our versions is the word sunodeme. And this is the word that says suffering pain together. So what Romans 8.23 says is together with creation, we are groaning together and we are suffering pain together. Together. So as a church, we're trying our best right now to reach out to every member and every family unit in our church just to check on people regularly. And we need you to reach out to us when you are in need. Don't just wait for people to reach out to you to say, what are your needs? But now is a time when we are overcome by anxiety or fear or our bodies are aching, whatever it may be, that we are reaching out to someone saying, hey, I, I need help. I, I, my, my body's groaning for redemption, which is what Paul says. Then not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In Romans 8, we groan because something and we groan for something. And the people in Rome, they're groaning because there was oppression. There was a, an emperor who was brutal. There was persecution that was happening. There was sin that was all over the place. And we groan because of those same things too. We groan because things aren't right. We groan because this crisis has hit us and we don't know what is happening. We groan, but we also groan for, and what Paul groans for, and what he asked the church to groan for in Romans 8, is we groan for the redemption of our bodies. Just for God to set what is wrong right. For God to make things right. In Romans 8, 25, there's this verse that is both comforting and haunting. And it's this. That if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I mean, there's a lot of things we hope for right now. But I think we're all discovering that, I mean, we may have thought we had a lot more control in this world than we do. So if we, if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
On September 11th, not of 2001, but September 11th of 1878, there was a cold fog that came over Memphis. And it wasn't a freezing fog, but it was a cold fog that was the beginning of the end of the worst yellow fever epidemic that hit the United States. In the 18, year 1878, the mid-1870s, Memphis was a city that was growing, it was expanding. In the year 1878, there were at least 1,500 buildings that were under construction. There were dozens of churches. There were also over 100 salons. There, were, uh, uh, there was so much happening in the city. We were a population of about 50,000 people. We had the, the largest inland cotton production in the entire United States, producing about 360,000 bales of cotton every year. But with cotton also came slavery. We're on Adams Street, which is here today. You drive down Adams Street. They would hold, quote-unquote, yard sales. Where even in 1878, there were around 1,000 slaves being sold every year. We also were a medical town. We had some really good hospitals. The North, in the Civil War, the North used our hospitals to serve their, their, their soldiers. And then our hospitals became research centers in the 1870s where people were researching cholera and malaria and even yellow fever. We were also a city with a lot of filth. We didn't have a sewage system, so anytime it would rain in the spring and there were floods, they would just leave trash and sewer all over the city, piling up on street corners. And Memphis was in debt, so they, they couldn't pay to have a lot of this taken care of. There are those that are historians who say you could smell Memphis from five miles away. And we also had Memphis's own form of Mardi, Mardi Gras at the time, where every year invitations would be sent out all around. And in 1878, over 10,000 people came to our city to celebrate this festival. So a population of 50,000, 10,000 visitors. And downtown, there were, there were 40-foot floats that would go through this parade. There was champagne and fountains. There were fireworks that were going off. This huge celebration. The streets were lined. And then that spring, we had a flood in Memphis, which left filth and trash all over the place. And then when people left the festival, it was even worse. Horse manure, trash is piling up everywhere. And it was about that same time, late spring, early summer that a ship set sail from Africa, coming to the United States. And it was a ship that was carrying ivory and gold and copper, and, and it was also carrying a lot of mosquito eggs that had yellow fever. So all these people went home, and Memphis was left with all this trash, and then here came this ship. And the ship came to New Orleans, and it was in New Orleans that doctors would go and they would inspect the ship. And if any, pride, if any sailor, any person on there either had died from yellow fever or had yellow fever, the ship was to be quarantined. And all the people were to be quarantined for 14 days while they washed and cleaned everything on it. Yellow fever is an awful disease. It, it was... Uh, it was transmitted, taken from, by mosquitoes to one person to another, but people in 1878 didn't know that. The whole goal of epidemic that we're finding out right now, too, is that the goal of, epi uh, or the goal of a virus is epidemic, and a virus is looking for something living so that it can possess what is living and then spread all over the place. And, and, and that's what happened right here in Memphis when, the, when that ship came up to New Orleans, a doctor went and inspected, and there were actually two sailors who had died from yellow fever. But there were deadlines to get all the gold and copper and salt and ivory up the Mississippi River to other cities. So the doctors wrote off the two deaths as malaria and just let the ship through. The ship came up to Memphis, and when it got here, it was like a mosquito's playground. There was a drought that summer, so when the ship arrived in July, the mosquitoes just had their way. 
Within five days, 25,000 Memphians left the city. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't, some people thought it was demon possession. I mean, there was just the, the sound of death everywhere. And if you had resources and you had money, you left. A, a city of 50,000 people within just a few days, 25,000 were gone. And of those who were left, 17,000 of them had yellow fever. It was around that time, about 100,000 people throughout the United States died of yellow fever. Some people say it's the reason or one of the main reasons that the capital moved from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. in 1793 was because of a yellow fever outbreak. So here was all this filth. Mosquitoes were taken over. Mosquitoes were ravaging. People were dying. And as people were dying, other people started to do something about it. You had nurses and you had uh, you had nuns and you had priests and ministers and doctors who made a decision to stay. And some of them weren't even from here who came to Memphis to serve. Now, if they were more aware of how yellow fever worked or even aware of what germs were, I'm sure there were things they would have done differently. But, but it was the church and there was people on the front lines and doctors and nurses who, who stood in the gap and were serving people. And a lot of blacks weren't able. They didn't have the resources to leave Memphis. And, and for some reason, it seemed like they were immune. Many of them were immune to yellow fever. So blacks ended up serving all, all of the whites in our city, caring for them, taking many who had died to the cemetery. On April 13th, the first person died. August 13th. August 14th, seven people died. August 15th, 22. August 16th, 33. Within a few weeks, over 5,000 Memphians lost their lives. A thousand nurses 33 doctors, and dozens of priests, ministers, and nuns. And I don't bring up this story because we're in an epidemic and we don't know how bad this is going to be. I don't bring it up for that reason. I want to bring it up for this reason. If you were to look at any epidemic that has happened in the last 2,000 years, almost every single one, what you will see is that the church rose up. The church rose up in the second century in Rome when a plague came and wiped out about 30% of the population. The church rose up in the year 251 when an epidemic went crazy. The church rose up during the bubonic plague. A church rose up. The church rose up during the yellow fever. And the church continued to rise up to say things like, we are not going to let yellow fever define who we are. We're not going to let these plagues define who we are. Jesus has defined who we are. And we're not going to let this define who we are. It doesn't mean we don't move forward with wisdom and responsibility and with care. But the mission of God keeps moving. The church is still a force in the world. And God is still just as creative as God has ever been to help the church know how to navigate these times. So Jesus teaches us who God is. Jesus is the one who models what, how God interacts with suffering. And Jesus came and injected himself and often moved into places of pain. Jesus moved into those places. Jesus taught that the God's grace can get lower than our lowest low. And Jesus came reflecting on who God is and how God moves in and through the suffering of the world and the suffering of our lives. And one thing Jesus said was this in, in, in John 15, 16, and 17. What Jesus said a couple of times is he would say things like, it is better for me and my body to go away and for the Holy Spirit to come. You're going to be better off because of this. Jesus had such a high view of the Holy Spirit to think, my body go away, spirit comes, and you're better off. So right now, God is busy doing things all over the world. I believe God is doing things right now with this virus to press it back. God is miraculously healing people and doing things all over the world. But the Spirit of God is inside of you right now working too. 
right where you are, the Spirit of God is at work. And here's how Paul says it in Romans 8. What he says in Romans 8, and I hope this will give you great comfort today, in verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit knows the will of God. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us and the Holy Spirit is groaning for us. So when it comes to you praying in these times, you may be like me. There are times I sit with God and I don't even know what to pray for right now. I don't know what to offer up to you. But according to Romans 8, if all you have to offer up is a groan or a sound or a word, the Holy Spirit knows how to take that and make it into a, a form of prayer that pleases the heavens. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. There's some things right now that are out of our control. But there are also some things that are in our control. There's some things right now we can't control. There's a lot of we all wish we could control. But there are some things we can't control. We can control how we move about each day, being wise and responsible and caring. The way we practice physical distance and social distancing and staying in our homes when we can, there are things we can do. But the mission of God moves on too. And every day there are things we can do to encourage the body of Christ, to encourage our neighbors, to be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. I want to invite you right now, if you will, close your eyes and bow your heads just in the room where you are. And if you are in need of help, we ask you to find our form. There's a need form. You look through our social media, it's, it's, it's there. Let us know how we can help and serve you. And God, right now, for my friends listening to this, my prayer is that your life, your love, your joy, your hope, your peace will overshadow any form of paranoia, anxiety, fear, and worry that we may be experiencing right now. And my prayer is that because of Jesus' victory, we cannot lose, that it will give us the hope we need for today. In Jesus' name, amen.